And we have a special guest in the studio today to talk about more suffragette stuff. Yeah, we're joined in the studio today by the illustrious Belle Murphy, who is a uh, postgraduate student here at the University of Otago in Gender Studies, who does work around discourses of empowerment in feminist self-defense, and who is a feminist self-defense teacher through Wahinetoa, the Women's Self-Defense Network, and is also just a really awesome human being that I am really happy to call my friend and really happy is in the studio with us today to talk about this thing. Yeah. So welcome, Belle. Awesome. Welcome, Thanks, Belle. guys. Girls, it's lovely to be here. Cool. Um, so you've done a little bit through your self-defense stuff, um, a bit of research into suffragette stuff in New Zealand and, and abroad, is that right? Or yeah, well, I started out wanting to research the history of women's self-defense in New Zealand, and particularly feminist self-defense in New Zealand. And that ended up taking me to the suffrage um, movements of England, in particular, um, because one of the things that happened um, over there was that in the process of women organizing and agitating and fighting for their rights to vote, there was um, a lot more violent repression that they experienced from police and from male vigilantes and um, in that process. And so they began to arm themselves with jiu-jitsu, which was um, quite a fashionable uh, martial art at the time. And um, and so the, one of the first people to uh, formally teach women self-defense, one of the first women to do that, um, and to advocate for that in New Zealand was a woman called Florence Lamar, Flossie Lamar, and she um, she was born in 1890, and by the age of 20 she was a champion swimmer and barefoot roller skater and budding vaudeville performer. Um, how are you so, barefoot on roller skates? Yeah, it's like a thing, or it was in the early. But you wear roller skates on your feet. Yeah, they just yeah, they're like them on. strap on. <laughs> like strap-on wheels. There used to be these wheels that you would strap onto your shoes and you'd wear like, you know, Victorian booties and strap on your wheels, but she would just strap them onto her bare feet. Wow. And she was, uh, you know, champion swimmer and, and all this stuff. And she got inspired by hearing what was happening with the suffragettes. So obviously, as many of you know, suffrage was gained in New Zealand in 1893, but over in Britain and in the States, the fight was a lot longer and more bitter. Um, and so after being you know, tired of politely asking for the right to vote and being ignored, um, the Women's Social and Political Union, which is better known as the Suffragettes in, in Britain, um, yeah, they took to the streets. And those demonstrations became increasingly violent, with many women being um, groped and knocked to the ground and beaten by police. Mm -hmm. And one particular event of significance is known as Black Friday, which was November 18th, 1910, when in England um, the violence against marching suffragettes was so brutal that two women lost their lives. Mm. So at that point, leaders of the movement, like Emmeline Pankhurst, started um, publicly advocating for women to arm themselves. Um, and the Victorian costumes of the day came in quite handy for this because um, 
you know, under your corsets that you could put, like, you could use a corset to strap cardboard to your ribs to protect them. And in the bustles of their skirts, suffragettes would hide um, these wooden clubs, Indian wooden clubs, which they could whip out to um, to defend themselves. Oh, and, gorgeous. Yeah, and um, of course, jiu-jitsu is quite an elegant um, martial art because it's about... It's not about um, strength against strength. It's you know mechanics and things like that. So it was it's well suited to people who are smaller and lighter and less muscular than their opponents. Um, so and famously, Emmeline Pankhurst said, and um, this is in the London um, Herald of back in the I'm not going to have the actual. Oh, here we go. 1913, August 20th. It was published, and she said. We have not yet made ourselves a match for the police, and we have got to do it. The police know jiu-jitsu. I advise you to learn jiu-jitsu. Women should practice it as well as men. You should go all out with your sticks. What is the use of us going out in a demonstration for freedom and going unarmed? Don't come to meetings without sticks in future. Men and women alike, it is worthwhile really striking. It is no use pretending we have got to fight. Ooh, gives me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. So from there, so she reached out. She made a call in that same article saying, "Anyone who has skills and training, get in touch. We need to start organizing drills." And a woman who uh, became quite instrumental in training the suffragettes in jiu-jitsu was Edith Gerard. Gerud. Gerud. I'm not sure how do you pronounce her name, um, but she was like a little teeny tiny. Um, four foot 11 inch jiu-jitsu expert wow, in, in England cool. at the time and she started training the suffragettes and um, so they started learning how to fell a man who's twice her size and cause considerable pain so you know out of the blue you know the police were used to just rounding up suffragettes at their marches and dragging them off and arresting them and whatever and suddenly you know they started flipping cops and things like that and like um, they would, yeah, they would, um, they figured out, like, ways that they could, um, undo the suspenders of the types of pants that police wore at the time and drop oh. their pants to the ground <laughs> so that they would then trip and stumble over them and the, enabling the suffragettes to escape and they're just, <laughs> and they had, they'd have bouquets of flowers that actually had barbed wire, like, hidden and laced inside them, which they used to defend themselves and, um. Oh my goodness, I love it. Yeah, so, Edith, Garud ended up training um, a special elite brigade of women jiu-jitsu fighters called the bodyguard who would um, flank the prominent speakers and you know leaders of the movement because they were being seriously hunted by the police. There was new legislation introduced called the cat and mouse law which enabled the police to just sort of repeatedly catch and arrest and hold and then let go and catch and arrest and hold like um, people who were seen as agitators or whatever. So the bodyguard would surround the speakers and literally fight off the police as they tried to get, you know, tried to arrest the speakers, enabling, so Emmeline Pankhurst, for instance, to deliver her speech and then quickly be sh ushered away and, and taken to safety where the police couldn't catch her and things like that. So, yeah. Wow. I just, it's so amazing to hear because we we think about women's suffrage and we celebrate it and um, and there's this very, like, kind of glossy narrative now of, 
isn't this a great thing? Women fought for their rights, and but to actually start to like have stories and images and know about the, you know, how serious the situation was, and and just how much women were risking and their their creativity and their fortitude and their determination and their willingness to put their own bodies on the line um, to fight for a right that would not have otherwise been just give, no one gave women the right to vote. Mm. They took it for mm. them for for us, and um, yeah, it's just. Wow, I love barbed wire and flowers and, you know, like weapons mm. hidden in, in ultra-femme Victorian clothing. and mm. it's, Wow. Well, one another reason that um, jiu-jitsu was quite important politically was that one of the arguments that um, men who opposed women's suffrage in, in Britain were using was that women don't deserve the right to vote because they are not physically capable of defending the nation. And that is what a vote, a voting mm -hmm. worthy citizen <coughs> should be able to do. And it was, you know, it was this like, you know, in the lead up to major world war and all this stuff. So, you know, that was another really powerful thing that women were able to show that, well, in fact, we are capable of defending not only ourselves, but, um, you know, our movement and by extension the nation um, in, in as much as men are capable of that as well. Mm. But there's a... You know, there's a lot of really interesting, complex, and quite fraught history around the suffrage movement as well, which is important to remember, in particularly um, the ways that some, particularly some people in the suffrage movement, you know, really threw women of color under the bus in their attempts to gain the vote for white women. Mm. You know, um, so there's, but there's also you know examples of white suffragettes who um, who advocated for the rights of women of color as well. You know, so like all moments of feminist history, there's um, it's a heterotopia. You know, there's always a lot of mixture of voices and debates, and um, because women don't live single issue lives, you know. Um, so yeah, but one of the things that's interesting that a lot of the suffragettes suffragettes and in Britain were saying was like how um, what a slap in the face it was to that the women at the heart of the empire you know the British Empire still didn't have the vote but Maori women in New Zealand did have the vote you know that was just uh, an un Maori men as well wasn't it right yeah, like yeah yeah, yeah. <coughs> um, and you know there is our arguments to be made for you know why we have we have suffrage in New Zealand er, so much earlier than other places isn't necessarily because w New Zealand was more progressive, but also um, because of anxiety that Pākehā men had around um, Māori men being, having been given the right to vote. And a lot of, of Pākehā men realised that Pākehā women would vote in Pākehā interests. Mm. And so by, by, you know, doubling, basically doubling the adult population of voting Pākehā, was a, was a good way to secure Pākehā interests in um, over Māori interests as well. So, mm. yeah, you know, it's important to remember that um, the ways that, yeah, women's rights um, can 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 work against um, other really important oppressions, and um, but at the same time can can work for them as well. So, mm. Mm. so yeah, oh, fascinating pieces of history. Should we take a tune break? I think so, and get back to it. That was. Yeah, so interesting. Thank you, Belle. To our fabulous listeners, you're listening to your friendly neighborhood feminist on Radio 191 FM. Joined in the studio today by the fantastic Belle Murphy. Current time is 3.15, and uh, we'll be back after some tunes.
We have Val Murphy in the studio who is telling us about, uh, I guess, the suffragette movements in New Zealand and abroad and feminist self-defence and the intertwining of all of these things. Because mm. it happened it's here first, right? Well, suffrage happened here first, yep. Yeah. Oh, so, so that's that what you mean? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, the intertwining of Self-defense of, of women happens in New Zealand before anywhere else. <laughs> well, wow. it, is a, it is important to acknowledge in any conversation of, of self-defense um, and, and women's self-defense, the you know incredible mana and, and, um, and dignity and history of Māori women's self-defense, you know, who have been fighting for not just themselves, but their whanau and their hapu, their iwi, their whenua, generations on these islands so yeah you know well f like I said uh, earlier Florence Lamar Flossie Lamar was the first sort of she wrote the first book ever published in New Zealand about self-defense for women and you know she did she toured the Australasian circuit doing her vaudevillian um, very sort of florid vaudevillian performances with her husband Joseph who uh, was a boxer and um, it was they were instructional um, vaudeville performances for women on jiu-jitsu but so she's the first sort of well-known one but you know it's important to look back and in, in, in history too at you know for instance in 1886 um, the magistrate of the Hokianga reported that a group of Māori women forcibly obstructed the passage of a group of government surveyors on their land at Motu Karakara. No, and so that's just one little example. In every hapu and iwi has you know stories um, that could be told about the strength and mana of, of wahine Māori as well. Um, so I guess just to sort of bring that yeah that history back into Aotearoa. So from we talked about the suffragettes in in Britain and their use of jiu-jitsu and which inspired Florence Lamar and um, in the 18 sorry in the er first decade of the of the 19th century so um, like she would in her performances she would demonstrate and and you know advocate um, for self-defense for women and she would take challenges from the floor so you know where men would get up out of the audience and try and um, and topple her, and you know, there was a, even a wager for a hundred pounds to see if it, you know who, if a guy could defeat her on stage. And many tried, but none succeeded. Ha ha! But yeah, her <laughs> book, the book that she wrote, is um, called *The Life and Adventures of Miss Florence Lamar, the World Famous Jiu-Jitsu Girl*. And the only copy I've been able to find is at the um, Alexander Turnbull Library in Wellington, hmm. which um, I got managed to get sent down. Um, to look at and it's very delicate you know ancient thing but if you're interested in learning more about the, the this history um, Pauline Hayes who is was is also a, a trained uh, self-defense teacher and a theater um, she's a playwright and director and so she wrote a, a story all about she did a play about the life of Florence Lamar which had toured was part of the fringe festivals um, 2014 2011 I think but she's got a, a really awesome website if you look up um, Cook Place Productions um, or search Pauline Hayes or Florence Lamar, world famous jiu-jitsu girl, you'll get there through Google. But um, lots, she did lots and lots of research about Florence's life and her personality and um, yeah, lots of quotes um, and things like that you can find there as well.
So, cool. yeah. Um, shall I continue? Yeah, go on. Tell yeah, us more. I, I just love the subtitle of like world famous jujitsu girl. Like <laughs> yeah. that's that says a lot about her personality right there. Yeah, yeah, she was pretty out there. Um, but yeah, the 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 book is full of these like. Um, obviously rather embellished stories you know it's and they're very um in the sort of vaudeville tradition of like um you know once upon a dark and stormy moonlit night i was walking down this alleyway and you know i was attacked by these hoodlums and blah 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 this sort of like language you know and um in these very sort of um perhaps embellished stories of, of heroism but but i mean she was legitimately and like inc incredible and nobody could topple her but um, yeah, so self-defense kind of dipped out of public attention um, in the sort of first part of the of the you know 1900s and after kind of the this this thing in the in the first couple decades, and then it reemerged again in the 70s um, in connection with the women women's liberation movement and what's often talked about as the second wave of feminism. So that was started to happen in lots of places around the world as women became aware of, um, you know, for the first time evidence and empirical evidence was coming out and studies were being done and things that were showing um, the prevalence of things like sexual violence and domestic violence and you know that that realization that the personal was political, and that there was um, you know violence against women was a political issue, and that it was so widespread. And um, so in New Zealand, one of the one of the key people that really launched um, feminist self-defense was Sulai Tolis, and. Um, I was really lucky to be able to sit down with Sue and spend a couple hours and um, ha do an interview with her um, as part of this research. So I'm really grateful to her for sharing her story, which is where a lot of the knowledge I have about um, this history comes from, as well as um, as other research and and archival research. Um, but yeah, so she was a black belt in judo by the age of 17, wow. and. Um, she also was is a lesbian and de started developing her feminist conscience consciousness in the um, 1970s and in 1979 she was approached by a number of feminists including some of the Maori women who founded Women's Refuge you know all this stuff was new like it, it was nothing there was no refuge there was no support there was no you know mm. um, and they approached her and they said why don't you start running women's self-defense classes for women, you know, like inspired by f feminist um, principles. And she said well, she couldn't really think of any reason why she couldn't. And, you know, she had done tons of different kinds of martial arts and trained with all the, you know, who's who in the New Zealand martial arts world. And she said, and this is a quote, she said, I learned a million ways of how to get rid of a gun in my back and I really didn't think that was good. It was inappropriate. You know, it wasn't real for women's experiences. They speak nothing about the reality for women of why you're even doing it. And it was very condescending and victim blaming and predominantly it was men teaching it. 
Um, there was also a numerous incidences of sexual assaults and domestic violence within the martial arts community, so you know, perpetrated by male instructors and things like that. So all of that stuff kind of motivated Sue to start her own programs. And so she started working on the, uh, the idea of an eight-hour women's class. And the first feminist self-defense class she taught was at the uh, Feminist Arts Festival in Christchurch in 1979. And present in her first class were the one and only, the two and only, Top Twins. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know who the Top Twins are? No. Oh, my God. The Top Twins are the best. When yeah. I went to the... Um, to the Alexander Turnbull Library to do some of this research in the archives there. Um, there was a really wonderful exhibition all about the Top Twins. Cool. With tons of pictures and videos. They're like lesbian, country, comedian, comic, extraordinaire activists, mega babes from New Zealand that are still, still around and performing. Mm, yeah. Um, and they're hilarious and very, very cool. Yeah, really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Look them up. You'll enjoy it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then she ended up teaming up the, with the YWCA, you know, who are very long-standing, respected women's organization, not just by radical feminists, but by well, women in, in general in New Zealand. And they managed to sort of find a loophole in one of Muldoon's funding um, programs, um, the Temporary Employment Scheme, which strangely was quite good at supporting some very radical activity in the 70s <laughs> and they developed a job description job title for a feminist self-defense teacher and sue applied and got it and then yeah started developing the programs um yeah and then so from there you know she learned and and shaped those programs by doing them you know she said um is that my phone ringing <laughs> sorry we'll just ignore that it's just nice background music. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> um, you know, so it was huge learning. Like, so the, some of the first uh, statistics were coming out. So Miriam um, Safira did this survey through the Women's Weekly magazine asking women about their experiences of violence. And that was the first time we got that statistic, that 90% of the time it's people we know. Mm. You know. It was something we knew, but we didn't know. You know what I mean? Mm. And not to that extent. Um, and then that was stuff that, you know, Sue was finding true in her courses as well. And, um, you know, she found that she said, I did, I didn't, didn't go into it, um, assuming that many of the women in the classes would have been violated as children. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that that's going to impact on their ability to defend themselves now, you know, that stuff that came as she organically through teaching, you know, so she'd be teaching and women were, would get triggered in the conversations and they should be organically working through that in the class and noticing that, that there was this trend and so then you know beginning to introduce the conversation about that stuff at the beginning in the first intro welcome part of the class about trauma and how it can affect us and um, and you know incorporating knowledge around where we can find support and um, the different benefits that can come from different sorts of support that we might have if we've been hurt and um you know so yeah it's so amazing to kind of go back in time to a point in history where this these kinds of numbers that that make like that really identify something that that women especially would have already known which is that this is so common and and so horrific and and so real in the lives of so many women um 
and to just imagine what it would be like when those kinds of numbers and when those questions were first being asked, when those numbers were first coming out, when mm. suddenly there was this real shift in cultural awareness of like, wow, this is really and truly a thing. Um, and then to be thinking about like people who from the very beginning were going, okay, we want to do, s- we're doing something about this mm. now. We're, we're doing self-defense courses that are tailored to the mm. lived experiences mm. of women. And to think about like, the knowledge base and the courage and the emotional skill necessary to be able to like develop curriculums on such sensitive subjects on the fly mm. Mm. yeah absolutely Whoa. and you know it's so different fighting fighting in a dojo and fighting off muggers in the street is so psychologically emotionally practically in so many ways is so different from the reality of the kinds of violent situations that most women find themselves in, which is in the context of relationships and in with people that we know and you know, so there's whole different skill sets, you know, that are involved. And so feminist self defense from an empowerment perspective you know, n- doesn't need to include as well like conversations about how to deal with those mini uh, attacks like um, unwanted comments and you know, sexual harassment in the workplace and on the street and you know, not waiting until we've been grabbed necessarily to fight back, but finding ways to assert our needs and our boundaries, um, and at first, and get in touch with the with the fact that we have those and we deserve to have those in the first place. And mm-hmm. you know, workshopping around that, building up of the se- our sense of not only our ability to defend ourselves, but our right to do that, and what that really looks like in a holistic sense. So, mm-hmm. of of her philosophy, Sulai Tolis said. Some of my words were women's strength is self-defense. You know, beginning to associate that word strength and what strength means. It doesn't mean lifting weights. It means inner strength to stand up for who you are, the right to stand up for who you are and getting in touch with that strength. It's like coming into a room with a bunch of flowers yet to bloom and watching the flowers open up to the concept. She said mm. that was sort of what it felt like in the early days um, mm. of teaching. That's so nice. Yeah, but yeah, she there was definitely resistance, resistance to women's what? resistance. Can you believe it? There was this one, this one martial arts um, sort of big wig head honcho guy who called himself the Black Dragon in New Zealand. Of course he did. <laughs> and he tried to take Sulai Tolis to the Human Rights Court, um, arguing that her courses were sexist because they were only for females, and that because sh- she was describing what rape was in her classes, that it was illegal because she was illegally teaching sex education. Um, but he was unsuccessful, and um, she figured out that um, there was only two organizations in New Zealand that were qualified to teach sex ed, um, and one of them were Family Planning, who was brand new, and the YWCA, who, of course, she was hired by when she developed her program, so she was completely... Bingo. Yeah. Um, nice. So, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, there was lots of other, um, I know... Um, there's always resistance to women's resistance in one lots of different contexts. Um, yeah. Hmm. So in 1983, she started training other women to teach self-defense. And from that, a whole proliferation of networks began, including the women's, you know, that was the the beginning of the women's self-defense network, Wahine Tol, which is now the only national network of um, accredited fe- feminist empowerment self-defense teachers so that was you know originally there was a whole bunch of different networks that started up in the 80s and in the late 70s so Fakamaru Tsinana was a a Maori women's self-defense organization that um, formed in 1984 and you know they 
they taught um, you know physical techniques along with discussions on attitudes to violence and um, identity and confidence building working with Fano and a holistic approach to health um, and to women's safety um, and then also positive action which was in a North Island network and yeah and then in the early 90s it sort of um, conglomerated into what is now the Women's Self-Defense Network Cool, which you teach for. Yes. And you have some courses coming up if you'd like to plug those. I do, yes I do. Um, There's three different streams of courses I'm teaching this semester uh, through the OUSA Clubs and Societies Center as part of their recreation program. They're all free. They're funded by um, Ministry of Social Development and ACC. Hard one funding. Hard one funding yeah. that's always being, you know, ongoingly um, negotiated and fought for. Um, but mm. we want to make these as accessible as possible. Um, so there, there's three streams. One starts on th- next Thursday, and it'll go for five weeks. So it's an hour and a half each Thursday evening. Um, then there's one on uh, August 11th, which is a Saturday, I think. It's a and it's a full day. Um, so from 10.30 till 5.30. And then there's another one in September. Um, anyway, if you want to look into those or sign up, um, go to the OUSA Clubs and Societies website to the recreation page and scroll down to W and you'll find Women's Health Defense. They're open to all women. So that means they're open to cis and trans women and uh, takatapui, um, gender minority people are, are welcome. Um, obviously it is taught within, you know, their programs are developed for women, so particularly suited to people who move through the world as women and who are, have been socialized as women and, um, but in, are taught in a way that acknowledges that intersecting oppressions that we have in our lives also impact the types of violence we will experience and also might shape the sort of responses that we might choose, you know, and, and also they shape the way that we will be responded to if and when we do defend ourselves. You know, for instance, mm-hmm. we know that, um, you know, women of color, um, you know, might are often not seen as um, legitimate victims in, with as much ease as white women are often seen, for instance, and the same go- goes, you know, the legal system doesn't it doesn't treat us all equally. So, you know, we're aware of, of all those kind of complexities. And we all we all come as, a, as women to something like a women's self-defense course with already so much diversity mm. in the room. Um, mm. Yeah. Cool. That sounds great. So go on to OUSA, check those out, women's self-defense. Yeah. And we'll go ahead and keep our listeners posted uh, yeah. as those dates approach as well cool that would be awesome yeah they're really fun days it's it's um you know the feedback that i get is often that it's um it's a lot more than people thought they would get from you know a workshop Mm. like that and the day you know the one day workshops um you know i recognize that giving a day a whole day of your weekend is a is a great thing but you know the the day goes really fast, and you know we should t- break for food and have lots of cups Sometimes of tea and snacks, chocolate. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know it's not all physical stuff, so it's not like it's not like um, some sort of military drill. You're punching. You're punching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so punching no, punching is a great way. Punk- punching is a great way to punctuate. Um, you mm. know, you, l- discussions and workshops, and they've got lots of different activities and um, yeah. So discussions around how to deal with um, everything from just you know, annoying experiences where people just aren't, are crossing a boundary, you know, for mm. you in whatever way and s- verbal assertiveness and 
strategies that we can use in our relationships and in w with strangers or whatever, um, all the way through to, yeah, how to break kneecaps and get out of strangle holds and get people off you on the ground. And, and everything is optional, you know, so really respecting people's boundaries in those classes is a really important thing for me as well. So if people feel uncomfortable with any of the activities, they don't have to practice them, you know, so. Yeah, um, and it's for yeah. all abilities, isn't it? That's right, yep. yeah. All fitness levels, all abilities, all body shapes, sizes, and colors, and ages. You don't have to be a student or in any way affiliated with the university to come to these classes either. So you can, anyone can register through the clubs and societies recreation page. Yeah. Having cool. at attended one of these, I must say I fully endorse. It's really it's a really fun, empowering, invigorating day.